Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Christine wasn't feeling well this week, so she's away. In today's episode, we'll discuss Alberta Premier Danielle Smith's invocation of the Alberta Sovereignty Act. And we'll share a legal win we had, as well as, as always, our bad legal takes of the week. But first, I'm going to tell you about a Waterloo school board chair who has lost his bid to block a teacher from having her defamation claim proceed after he called her transphobic and claimed that her delegation to the school board violated the human rights code. I'm talking about Carolyn Burjoski, who has just defeated this anti-slap motion filed by Waterloo School Board Chair Scott Piotowski in his defamation claim against her. And for the non-lawyers, I'm going to explain what all of this means. So basically back in 2022, Burjoski showed up to this school board meeting to explain why she thought some books in the school library were inappropriate for children. And she began by reading this book called Rick, where a boy questions his sexuality because he doesn't think about naked girls. And at the end of the book, apparently he declares himself asexual. And Brzozowski's point about this book was she just thought it was not appropriate for, you know, grade three students accessing this book to read. And she also said, quote, some of the books make it seem simple, even cool to take puberty blockers and opposite sex hormones. And at that point, the board chair warned her against violating the human rights code. Brzozowski then began talking about a book where a teen named Shane transitions from male to female. And she said this book doesn't take into account how Shane may feel later in life about being infertile. And this book makes serious interventions seem like an easy cure for emotional and social distress. A very controversial thing to say, no doubt, in 2023. But uh, at this point, the board chair, Piotowski, the guy who she's now suing, interrupted and claimed that she violated the human rights code. And so he shut down her presentation. So the board then got in in on the action. They wouldn't post the the school board meeting because they said something about it violated the human rights code. And then Piotowski went to the media. And this is where the defamation claim comes into play because he called her transphobic in the media. He said she questioned the right of trans people to exist and again repeated this claim that she violated the human rights code and because of those comments this teacher actually retired and she says she experienced medical distress and so to try and restore her reputation she decided to sue in defamation so are you with me so far joanna that's a lot of background i know yeah i'm waiting for you to break down the slap part which i have to be honest even as a lawyer sometimes is a little confusing yeah so slaps are the the test is a bit complicated i think it was if i recall correctly um justice cote who wrote this test and it's it's um it makes sense but it's also not the easiest thing to grasp so well, there's I'll a lot of double it. negatives right there there is there is i'm actually not even getting into too yeah, deep into that stuff but let's just start with the basics so what what is defamation so defamation is this tort where you you know allege someone's injured your reputation and you want to sue them to get some money and restore your reputation and make you whole again and it's actually not hard to show defamation you just have to show that the comments tend to lower your reputation in the eyes of a reasonable person that the comments were about you and that the the comments were communicated to a third person so like that's really easy to do but the big question is whether the person who made the comments has a defense and 
in a very large number of cases, people do have a defense, for example, that the comments were true, or even if they're not true, that they were, you know, reported responsibly and that there was no malice. And so, like I said, defamation is easy to show, but there usually is a defense. And so it, it used to be really easy to just like hire a lawyer and drag people to court to defend themselves. This was at great expense to the person who is accused of defamation, right? So, you know, even if they had an obvious defense, like defense, like, you know, yes, I said this, but it's true. The mere risk of being dragged into court and needing to shell out for a lawyer uh, chilled people from engaging in the, the public conversation. So that meant, you know, rich people could often avoid criticism because they could just threaten defamation lawsuits and the little guy who wanted to criticize them couldn't afford to go and defend himself in court. These nuisance defamation lawsuits against the little guy are called strategic lawsuits against public participations or slaps. To deal with this problem of slaps, the provinces, or at least Ontario and more than one province, but certainly Ontario has passed a law that says the defendant can bring a motion so they can go to the judge early on and argue that the case should be dismissed before the lawyer bills start to, to rack up. So that's what Piotrowski and the school board tried to do here. They tried to claim Brzozowski's defamation claim against them was just trying to, you know, shut up the little guy somehow. And long story short, they lost this motion and they have to pay Brzozowski $30,000 in costs. And what's been getting a lot of, of attention here is that the judge actually soundly rejected this claim that Piotrowski and the school board had made and which school boards and city councillors, uh, you may have noticed, Joanna, keep making all over the country, and which I find kind of ridiculous that uh, people speaking at public meetings violate the human rights code if they engage in their charter protected right to express themselves on controversial issues like gender identity. So what the judge said here was that Berjowski's defamation claim, the judge said that claim has substantial merit, which is part of what's needed for the slap motion to, to be defeated. So he also said that Berjowski didn't violate the human rights code because the human rights code, quote, does not prohibit public discussion of issues related to transgenderism. It doesn't prohibit public discussion of anything. And you may recall uh, school board trustee Nellie Kaplan-Mirth in Ottawa, who is perhaps most famous for being a very passionate pro-mask advocate, uh, did the same thing to a parent who, in a very respectful tone, said that he thought trans students who had been assigned male at birth and transitioned to female shouldn't be in the same washrooms with his 12-year-old girls because he thought, or his 12-year-old girl, I think it's one daughter, because he thought that this created like a safety risk. And I don't know about that argument. I can see both sides of that argument, but he said nothing particularly offensive and certainly nothing illegal. And yet Kaplan Mirth also said, you can't speak. I'm shutting down your speech because you violated the human rights code. Now, the human rights code, we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast. It guarantees equal treatment with respect to goods and services. So things like you know, a restaurant, you can't put up a sign that says no Jews in my restaurant. It guarantees being free of discrimination and accommodations. So your landlord can't say like, oh, I won't rent to black people or in employment, you can't put up a job ad that says women can't apply, but it doesn't regulate, you know, speech at school board meetings. Like it, obviously that's protected by, by the charter. And the best explanation I've seen for why school boards and city councils are 
making this claim that offensive speech is a human rights code violation is that employers have a duty to provide a harassment free workplace and that this kind of speech constitutes harassment of their employees. But first of all, you know, the human rights code defines harassment as a course of conduct and it has to be vexatious conduct. And that means, you know, hearing something one time from one stranger at a meeting is not going to constitute harassment. But even if it did, uh, we know from the 2014 Supreme Court case, what caught, which we've talked about before, that expression that merely ridicules, belittles, or otherwise affronts the dignity of a person doesn't rise to the level of the extreme feelings constituting hatred that are needed to uphold a limit on the constitutionally protected uh, freedom of expression. So, you know, these kinds of things can't be banned anyway because the charter protects freedom of expression. So even though this was just a slap motion in in a court of first instance, I still think it's a pretty big win for freedom of speech and I'm happy to see it. So Joanna, what are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, it, it, seems like a rare thing that you have a judge in any context making a comment like the human rights code um, does not prohibit public discussion of anything. I don't know um, if it's really as strong as that as that claim is. And it's interesting because, of course, defamation can cut both ways, right? Like we don't want the most lax standard of defamation, um, although there's criminal defamation, which is an entirely different uh, entirely different situation where there's actually uh, criminal consequences and it's imposed by the state. Um, we're talking about civil defamation, which just imposes monetary consequences, but we also don't want um, people to be able to be um, sued and put into uh, financial consequences for any comment. Um, so here there's sort of like expression issues on both sides, um, but nonetheless, there has been this sort of um, instinct that under under the human rights code, there was this extreme sensitivity to any type of sort of like gender, transgender issues. Um, and it's somewhat refreshing to hear it confirmed that whatever you think about it, it's within reasonable conversation. And it doesn't rise to the level of either hate speech, which I don't even think was alleged here, or discrimination. Um, and so when we talk about free expression, obviously, we have to, you know, we're looking at civil, criminal, state sanctions. Um, and, you know, school boards are places where there should be the most open, the most sort of even contested uh, conversations. Um, this is, you know, this is a huge issue. Uh, I don't remember who it was, but a few days ago, somebody who um, is very progressive was just mentioning to me that in the Indigo Children's section, like, like two thirds of the books seem to be about gender issues for children. Um, and this was not a person that's like critical of transgender issues. Um, but this is like a whole publishing niche. So uh, my last question for you is, do you think this has any impact, any uh, effect in precedent or any weight in precedent? Yeah, I do. I mean, it, it obviously it's not going to be controlling of uh, judges in other provinces and it's a horizontal precedent for other people and other judges in the superior court. So I guess they don't have to follow it. But I think that the value of this decision as a precedent is just that it gives the other judge sort of food for thought, right? So if the if the law is going one direction and then there's suddenly a decision that says something different, I think that that can have a really meaningful 
impact. And I, I just want to add one one quick thing. So I I just remembered I I watched a delegation with another father. I think his name is Chris Easton. Um, he's probably one of the most famous like anti transgender in school um, activists out there. Billboard Chris is his name. Okay. And he did a delegation. I just just remembered this now where he went to a, a school board and he was talking about how he doesn't think there's any any such thing as a, a transgender child. And he offered all of these arguments and statistics. And I came away with that thinking like, wow, he really did not convince me that there is no such thing as a transgender child. And um, I actually, I found it really useful. So like everyone says he's, he's hateful or a lot of people say he's hateful and he shouldn't be allowed to speak at a school board. But just going and watching him speak and present his arguments makes it makes you makes you understand the issue all that much better. So I really am not a fan of yeah, uh, you can also trying to see shut the, these down. Yeah, see the argument and come to the opposite conclusion. <laughs> like right. people are capable of critical thought and coming at their own conclusions. And that's the that's the problem that we have sort of as an organization with fetters on speech is that it's based on a conception of human beings that were just like sheep. Right, right. Okay, well, enough about that. Happy to see it. Uh, let's move on to your headline. So this has been making um, a, a big splash in the news this week, but a lot of people are confused about what it means. So we'll walk you through it a little bit, Joanna. This is the Invocation of the Sovereignty Act in Alberta. Yeah. So uh, in Alberta, the Sovereignty Act was uh, assented to last year. Um, it was, of course, uh, passed as a uh, as a sort of signature legislative move by Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. And it was invoked for the first time on Monday. Um, and so the context in which it was invoked is targeting a federal bill, um, which is still in draft form. Uh, clean, It's called the Clean Electricity Regulations, um, which are proposing an electricity grid that produces net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2035. Um, and apparently, um, Alberta has concluded that this proposal infringes on the provincial constitutional right to manage its own electricity industry. Um, and furthermore, that the goal of net zero emissions by 2035 is unworkable uh, for Alberta. So now, under the Sovereignty Act, any minister in the Alberta Provincial Legislative Assembly can bring a motion that identifies a specific federal program or legislation as being unconstitutional or potentially harmful to Albertans or Alberta interests. Um, and if the legislature votes in favor, the cabinet must then ensure that the proposed action is constitutional and legal before proceeding. And so the federal government, of course, is not pleased about this. It is denying this. It is denying that these proposed regulations threaten Alberta. Um, Stephen Gilbo, the federal environment minister, and Jonathan Wilkinson, minister of energy and natural resources, said this week that uh, Smith is, quote, choosing to create fear and uncertainty over collaboration and positive results for Albertans. Uh, and they also noted that there had been a working group in Ottawa made up of officials from Alberta and Ottawa, um, which had been at the request of Alberta. And they had a quote unquote, several productive meetings. So they're saying basically, you were on board with this. You can't say you weren't consulted. So why are you acting out? Um, so let's back up a bit and talk about what the Sovereignty Act is. 
So this is Alberta's attempt to reassert its provincially guaranteed exclusive jurisdiction guaranteed under the Division of Powers, uh, which is set out in the Constitution Act 1867. Um, and it should be emphasized that under this Division of Powers, the federal and provincial executives are actually sovereign in their own spheres. That is why Canada is a federation, uh, not a unitary state. Canada exists because provinces came together, recognizing that we would be better off as one country in terms of things like trade and national defense. Um, but the provinces never ceded jurisdiction over local matters and property rights. And so this issue came up recently in the Supreme Court decision about the Impact Assessment Act, the No More Pipelines Bill, which we talked about plenty on this podcast. The court found that act mostly unconstitutional. They found that the federal court decision, which overturned uh, Ottawa's single-use plastics ban, which we talked about last week, that again, the federal government it was intruding too much into provincial jurisdiction. It is uh, a trend of this particular government that they just, they're like little mice that like to scamper into areas of provincial jurisdiction. And so we can understand the Sovereignty Act. Of course, there are, there are politics around this, um, but broadly, this is Alberta's way of pushing back against federal overreach and also just putting forward its understanding of the constitutional division of power. So this is not just a populist move. I do believe, um, and I know a lot of these people, that there are serious constitutional scholars um, who have this belief about the constitution, that it protects sovereign spheres of jurisdiction. And so the act, the Sovereignty Act, is allowing the provincial legislature to express its viewpoint on whether the proposed federal measure violates this division of power um, and you know, builds in an infrastructure where Alberta ministers can not enforce, as well as employees, cannot enforce federal laws that they believe are constitutionally suspect, at least until a court has decided uh, whether the measures are constitutional or not. And some legal scholars um, that we have worked with, Jesse Hardery and Jeffrey Siglet, who are um, really leading division of powers constitutional scholars in Canada, uh, although Jesse is currently currently in Australia, um, but they have written extensively, and maybe we'll put some of their uh, writing, for example, for the hub in the show notes. The case law has shown repeatedly um, that the province's executive branch is not required to cooperate with the federal government by administering federal laws. So if the federal government imposes a measure on Alberta that the legislature believes is unconstitutional, the feds uh, will find themselves in the position of enforcing that measure without the participation of Alberta provincial employees and agencies. And so where's all of this going? Uh, Daniel Smith has said that if Ottawa uh, plows forward with enforcing the clean electricity regulations, which again are still in draft form in Alberta, um, Alberta will take them to court. And she also said that the motion brought this week invoking the Sovereignty Act is designed to build a sort of record and help the courts understand the province's position. And she is sending a message that Alberta is, quote unquote, serious about pushing back against Ottawa's strategy um, and is giving them an opportunity to back down. Um, so I'll throw it to you, Josh, because I know you have a lot of thoughts about this. This is 
all controversial. I was reading this week, Andrew Coyne in the Globe was saying that this is kind of silly. And it turns out that either what they're doing is something, Alberta is doing something totally unworkable if they actually think when it comes down to the line um, that Alberta uh, employees are not going to enforce a federal bill, um, or they're just saying something that's a whole lot of nothing. We're going to say we're not going to enforce this unless a court forces us to. So what do you think about, about this? Anybody who knows where this is going to go next is probably lying to you because it's pretty unprecedented. Um, I do tend to think that there is nothing unconstitutional about the bill in sort of its general form, which is that Alberta is, you know, sovereign within its own sphere and cabinet and the premier have a right to go to the legislature and ask them to declare where they think that line is between uh, federal jurisdiction and provincial jurisdiction. And uh, the the division of powers in the Constitution, you know, this was written in 1867, and it was supposed to give provinces exclusive jurisdiction over some things and federal government exclusive over others. And it's been clear over time that there will always be laws by one government or the other that impact uh, the other uh, level of government's jurisdiction to some degree. And the question is, how far can you go in, you know, impacting, uh, intruding on that that other level of government's jurisdiction when you're enacting laws that are within your own jurisdiction? That's all I have to say about that. Okay, so um, enough about this. Uh, so we're recording this on Wednesday, November 29th. And yesterday was Giving Tuesday, which marks the beginning of our busy season for donations here at the CCF. And our listeners might not realize this, but the CCF is entirely donor funded, apart from some tiny amounts we get from things like uh, Christine's YouTube channel. And so we rely on people going to our website and making donations or even better, becoming monthly donors. And donations are what pay our salaries and what allow us to hire top counsel so that we can take on litigation like Trudeau's unlawful invocation of the Emergencies Act, hope to get a decision on that soon, and uh, BC's discriminatory vaccine passport program, and an ever-expanding list of freedom of expression cases since uh, governments seem to be intruding more and more on that. And so to incentivize people to give, we've lined up some bigger donors who are willing to match what other people give up to $100,000 starting yesterday and going to the end of 2024. And so if you give $100 in the next few days, uh, these donors will match that $100. So that would become $200 and you can double your impact. And our colleagues, uh, Trish Gardam and Russ Phillips have been working hard on organizing this Giving Tuesday campaign. And so instead of our regular mid-show ad, encouraging people to sign up for the Freedom Update newsletter, which you should still do, I figured we should get an update from Russ on how the Giving Tuesday campaign is going. So Russ is joining us on the show. Hi, Russ. Welcome to the show. So we're aiming to raise at least 100K. We're we're 36 hours into the campaign. How's it going? Well, it's been great so far. Uh, We've raised $25,000 so far, which means that because of our matching campaign, that $25,000 actually is $50,000, which is a great start for 2024. Yeah, that's awesome. So 
any idea how that compares to to previous years we've done this for a few years in a row um any idea what it was like you know last year when we were 36 hours in so we're about the same as we were last year but i do know we've got a bunch of donations we haven't counted yet that are still coming in so we sh we actually might be ahead okay that's great news so what kinds of reasons are, are people giving for donating to the ccf so the CCF's activities have gone, uh, we've, we've increased every year seemingly since uh, the pandemic, of course. Uh, there's always more uh, work for us to take on. Uh, these end of the year campaigns are becoming very important to get us started on a new year because we we're, there's always a, a bad government policy that we want to take on and there's always more work for us. And legal work is not cheap, so every bit of extra money we raise now that goes towards next year is you know one more case that we can take on or one more project that we can take on as well so great yeah i totally agree so we are at around twenty five thousand dollars so far we're only about a day and a half into the campaign which runs all the way to the, the end of the year so where can people go if they want to help us reach that hundred thousand dollar goal you can just go to the ccf.ca and right on the front page, there is a whole bunch of buttons. You can't miss them. Or you go to the ccf.ca slash donate, and that brings you directly to the form. And any donation made online on our website right now uh, will be uh, matched by a generous group of CCF donors. So it does count for double. Great. Thanks, Russ. No problem. Thanks, Josh. Okay. So let's move on to the freedom update. This is normally the part of the show where our litigation director, best-selling author, Christine Van Gein, gives us an update on the litigation we've been working on, but she's away today, sick. But she will be happy that you referred to her as best-selling author. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, that book, uh, Pandemic Panic, is doing amazingly well. So for our freedom update this week, it's, uh, it's a good one. So we won a major case, and I'm talking about the appeal of the Petrucci decision, which was colloquially known as the math is racist case because the holding of the divisional court here in Ontario, which is a court that does judicial reviews, um, requiring new teachers to pass a math test before they enter the classroom and start teaching math uh, and I mean a math test based on like, you know, grade three, six and nine math questions was somehow racially discriminatory and violated the charter right to equality for racialized teachers. So the court found uh, that this was the case because not because there was something actually racist about the test itself or biased about the test, but because some racial groups failed it more often on the first sitting of the test. And even though they would probably pass if they just rewrote it one or two times, they faced an adverse impact, according to the court, of added expenses because they might need to take the test more than once and they could be delayed entering the job market and becoming teachers. Um, now, the divisional court's decision was frankly jaw-droppingly stupid and they, they found basically it was not only discriminatory, but that requiring teachers to take this math test was a justified limit under Section 1 of the Charter. So. Thankfully, the Ontario Court of Appeal, in a decision written by Justice Monaghan, a unanimous decision, agreed with the arguments that the CCF made as an intervener. So we were the only intervener, by the way, so that's another reason that uh, people should consider donating, because if they don't, we won't be able to show up at, at cases like this in the future. So the test for what constitutes discrimination under the Charter has been in flux since the early days of the Charter. 
Section 15 says every individual is equal before and under the law and has the right to equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination and in particular without discrimination based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental and or physical disability. And when the charter was written in 82, nearly everyone thought it was meant to, you know, ensure people are treated equally. But then came this postmodern view. This is like the view of Ibram X. Kendi and other uh, critical race theory proponents that the only way to uh, remedy discrimination and to actual, actually have equality is to discriminate in the opposite direction. And former and justice, it should be noted that Section 15.2 does explicitly give cover for, quote unquote, affirmative action programs, right? Yeah, it it, it does. Um, so that's that's sort of a separate issue. But I guess I'm talking about more the substantive equality concept. And this is right. the idea Abella pushed. It's basically the idea that, you know, the equality guarantee is supposed to met, supposed to mean that we all end up equal in outcomes on every single measure, regardless of what group we belong to. And that means, you know, if someone can show an outcome that isn't equal between two groups using statistics, that's usually going to be evidence of discrimination. And that's just kind of completely un unrealistic. And the charter, the test for equality has been in flux. It just, it just keeps changing. Like the Supreme Court can't seem to figure out exactly what equality is supposed to mean. And so Abella appeared to get her way more than ever in a 2020 case called Frazier, where the court found that uh, women RCMP officers should get full-time pensions payouts, like in retirement, even if they work for a long period of time for, you know, just part-time hours. And this was because women are more likely to go part-time because they have to take care of young children. And this is true. It does happen way more to women, but there was nothing really arbitrary there uh, on the government's part. It just said, if you're going to work part-time and pay into the pension part-time, you're going to get a slightly lower pension. But uh, Abella and the court didn't see it that way. They, they saw Section 15, at least in 2020, as requiring the government to sort of close all gaps between groups, regardless of what created that gap in the first place. So with Abella gone in 2022, the Supreme Court corrected itself somewhat in a case called Sharma. And the test remains officially the same, but they clarified in Sharma that arbitrariness should still be a factor that uh, that's considered. And Justice Monaghan's decision says that too, that you can consider arbitrariness. You don't have to consider it, but you, you can consider it, which is important. So the test for finding a violation of Section 15 has two parts. First, the claimant needs to show that the challenge law or state action creates a distinction on the basis of an enumerated or analogous ground. So something like race or gender. And the second part is they have to show that that distinction imposes a burden or denies a benefit in a discriminatory manner. And the court has said that what's discriminatory is a measure that reinforces, perpetuates, or exacerbates disadvantages. So Justice Monaghan found that divisional court was wrong, very wrong. Neither part of the discrimination test had been met by imposing this mandatory math test on teachers. First of all, he found that the statistics used, which had showed that early sittings of the test seemed to show this disparity between racial groups, weren't good enough to show a distinction between groups in terms of how many how many people would uh, pass the test and go on to become teachers. 
And in fact, more recent data has shown that for people who retook the test, so they maybe they didn't pass the first time, but they took it a second or third time, racialized and non-racialized people had almost an identical pass rate. There was one group where the pass rate was a bit lower. It was black test takers, but they still had a pass rate well over 90%. So if you're talking about statistics, that's a very small difference, right? And second, and I think more importantly, Monaghan found that the test didn't reinforce, perpetuate, or exacerbate disadvantages. And he followed the CCF's arguments here, which is where the government's taking steps to accommodate a group, responding to their actual needs and capacities, and where the measure isn't arbitrary, as in the government has a good reason for needing people to pass a math test before they start teaching, it's unlikely to be discriminatory. And to quote from the decision, the test is designed to test teacher candidates' knowledge of mathematical ideas that any individual who has completed high school level of education could reasonably be expected to understand. Moreover, in developing the test, the EQAO, which is the Education Quality something Ontario that developed the test, was alive to potential equity concerns. And so, in other words, this wasn't an arbitrary measure that harmed some group, racial groups in a discriminatory way. And the government did what, what, what was necessary to accommodate a potential adverse impact, like, you know, questions on the test that were biased toward white people. So there wasn't any discrimination here. And Joanna, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but I've seen a couple of commentators say, you know, this wasn't a big win for us because the test remains officially the same and i'm like well yeah of course yeah, the test remains I saw, the same. I saw those usual suspects on law twitter we love them we love them yeah. the nerds we love yeah. them um they make our job more fun so they're saying this is not a big win and I, I i can see that point but like did they really expect the court of appeal to uh not follow a 2022 supreme court decision um yeah or invent an, a new test under section 15. <laughs> Right. Yet another test. Like we get yeah. one every two years from the Supreme Court. So please don't yeah. just go about uh, inventing another one, because if you do that, then stare decisis and precedent doesn't mean all that much. But, you know, in my view, it is a big win because it, it forefront fronts arbitrariness. Like, yes, the holding doesn't change the test, but it's a, a really clear example of where if the government hasn't acted arbitrarily or unfairly, in creating this distinction, then it's not discriminatory. And I think that's a lot closer to how most of us see the charter and uh, what Section 15 is supposed to mean. So I'm happy with this case. I'm sure you're happy too. Do you have any thoughts or do you want to move on to your bad legal take? Uh, I, let's move on. I am going to write about this uh, next week for The Hub. So look out for that. Um, but yes, we're extremely pleased. Um, and we're extremely pleased to have it confirmed that math, it turns out, is not racist. Okay, so let's move on to bad legal takes. My bad legal take this week comes from Nunavut, where defense counsel for three individuals who have been who are charged with impaired driving argued that a ban on driving uh, would constitute cruel and unusual punishment. Um, so in Canada, under the criminal code, if you're uh, convicted of impaired driving on a first offense, um, there's a mandatory driving ban of at least one year, and then it's uh, longer bans for subsequent offenses. 
Um, and so lawyers for these Inuit uh, hunters argued that mandatory driving prohibitions prevent uh, harvesters from going on the land to hunt, uh, which is a right that is protected under the Nunavut agreement. And here the Crown actually conceded this, conceded and agreed that prohibiting uh, Inuit hunters from driving out on the land uh, violated their rights and actually conceded to the defense's charter application. Now, um, the judge disagreed uh, and the judge concluded that the applicants shall remain free to hunt. They just will be somewhat inconvenienced in doing so. Um, they would have to rely on others in the hunting party to operate the motor vehicles. So they can still hunt. They just are going to have to find somebody else to drive them out onto the land. Um, and so, yeah, I'm surprised that the Crown conceded this. Um, this is really remote. This is really a stretch to call this cruel and unusual punishment, even if you're giving full due effect and full deference to um, traditional hunting rights. Um, this is kind of part of what I would broadly say as a former uh, defense counsel, um, there's, you know, special courts and special principles that are rightly, I would say, invoked um, when the accused or, or or charged individual is of Indigenous origin. Um, so there's specialized courts called Gladue courts. Um, but let's not let the Gladue principle take us to the point of absurdity, where we're calling a driving ban on people who are charged with impaired driving, cruel and unusual punishment. You can still hunt, you just have to ask your hunting buddy to drive you out to hunt. Josh, what's your bad legal take? Wow. Yeah. So my bad legal take, <laughs> sorry, this cruel and unusual punishment stuff, it gets more absurd every week. Like the, the Supreme Court's uh, got a lot of great jurisprudence on a lot of parts of the charter, but it, when it comes to cruel and unusual punishment, they seem to be way out in left field time. I, in, I have to be again. honest. It's on, it's often like a kind of tiniest violin. So I hope I can say this now that the court, the case is long concluded, been on our quarantine hotels challenge. Our primary argument was life, liberty, and security of the person. But we also put in a section 12 cruel and unusual punishment claim. And now in that case, you did have, for example, somebody who was like left in their hotel room as a diabetic without food for 20 hours. Um, but even at the time, I was like, OK, it's probably not cruel and unusual punishment. But when you're litigating, you kind of throw a bunch of stuff at the at the wall. Yeah, it's a stretch argument, but we've seen with this particular section of the charter that the, the, yeah. the courts are very open to. <laughs> yeah. Just stretching those words far beyond what they could possibly mean. So I'm glad that uh, this judge in uh, Nunavut didn't uh, take the bait this time. So my bad legal take goes to John Doan. He's a lawyer with the Kingston Community Legal Clinic in Ontario, and he says a new community standards bylaw passed by city council there is discriminatory. So uh, you may be noticing a pattern here. A lot of my bad legal takes are from people alleging discrimination and um, that's because, as I was just discussing, courts have really stretched the idea of equality way beyond what it is, what it looks like for for most of us. And so, there's just a lot of these weird discrimination claims out there. So, Kingston's new bylaw is aimed basically at saving the city's downtown after it became overrun with drug addicts and uh, homeless people or unhoused people, as we're supposed to now call them. Uh, not unlike most cities. Uh, in, in 2023, which are facing big problems with uh, with their downtowns. So the councillors here, I watched the meeting, um, the, the city council meeting that is where they discussed and debated this. And the councillors have a lot of compassion for 
homeless people and people who use drugs, but it sounds like they've been inundated with complaints from people who say they feel unsafe downtown and from small business owners who are losing business because people are scared and they're justifiably trying to do something about it. So they readily admit there's not much they can do, but they, they pass this bylaw, which aims at some of the more antisocial behavior that they're seeing. And one thing the bylaw would do is ban urination and defecation in public places like parks, unless you use the actual washroom. And this got me thinking of when I moved to Vancouver many years ago for school, I was like amazed that uh, people did this, like defecated on the street. And um, I'm sad to say that a couple of years ago, I saw this for the first time in my own neighborhood. It's only happened once Gross. here, but um, yeah. But I also like this bylaw says you can't do that. Okay, well, so how are bylaw officers supposed to prevent people from, you know, going wherever they want? I, I don't know. They're going to like... Uh, stand there with like binoculars and then like <laughs> run up and say go to a proper washroom this is illegal isn't it just that you can like get a ticket if you're caught doing it it is but they also say you know with enforcement we're we're not going to be handing out tickets because we just want to uh you know educate the public and we'll only hand out a ticket if they do it over and over again so i don't know maybe someone's doing it over and over again and they'll get a ticket but if they're homeless they're not going to pay their ticket anyway so it's a little bit absurd but um there's 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 a lot more stuff in this bylaw so they also ban loitering and this seems to be aimed at panhandlers who you know sit on the sidewalk outside a particular store and sort of um you know colonize that space or take over that space and the part where the bad legal take comes in is that they want to ban displaying your drug paraphernalia like crack pipes and needles in in parks or within 15 meters of parks and also like, you know, abandoning your drug paraphernalia, like needles and, and pipes in, in the parks. And this is not unlike BC's new law, which we talked about on a previous podcast that bans, you know, using drugs in parks here, they didn't go so far as to ban using drugs in park, but they want to, they say, if we see you with like a crack pipe or your heroin needle, we're going to ticket you or, or shoo you away. So this lawyer with the bad legal take is saying that this is discriminatory because drug users have disabilities. And so banning, from, banning them from displaying crack pipes and needles is going to have an adverse impact on them. And he says the same thing about this ban on like defecation and ur urination, that it's going to have an adverse impact on people with the disability of uh, substance use disorder. And I just find this kind of laughable. Like, it's it's just silly to claim that someone who's addicted to drugs can't be punished for really antisocial behavior, like you know leave, leaving their their meth pipe uh, in the park or needles on some playground equipment, right? So um, even if this was somehow discriminatory, I'm pretty sure that this would be a reasonable limit. I think that's it for the show, right? No, no, Christine. So that's it. Any any last thoughts, Joanna? Before I send us out. No, I guess it's just, it's interesting that the emphasis is on, yeah, uh, drug users' right to display their needles and crack pipes, but not on, for example, neighborhood children, which I know has been a big issue in your neighborhood, um, in the east end of Toronto, just like needles, fresh needles poking out all over the place, including in very close proximity to daycares, schools, and parks. Um, so, you know, as a society, we have to just kind of... Uh, 
acknowledge that there are trade-offs and you know acknowledge that there are certain protections that we need to prioritize yeah i totally agree all right so as usual we hope you will rate us and review us and also subscribe uh, and share the podcast with your friends if you know anybody who might be interested and uh, you can support our work by subscribing to our youtube channel by following us on twitter or by visiting our website theccf.ca and signing up for the freedom update newsletter and like i mentioned we are a charity funded by donations so please consider donating if you can just go to our website and if you do that between now and the end of the year you will double your impact thanks for listening